0: So here's where I want to start this morning. I want to come back to the chalice lighting in this big flame and remind us that we come out of a tradition that had many dangerous men and women in it. We come out of a faith tradition that has been seen as dangerous because there were heretics, people who made choices about what they wanted to believe rather than just accept the belief of the time. We come out of a tradition where there were abolitionists and folks who fought for women's right to vote and folks who were involved in mental health reform and educational reform. We come out of a tradition, a dangerous tradition, where the powers and the assumptions and the beliefs of the day... We're not immune to critique and dismantling and saying, actually, my experience in the world doesn't jive with this belief or this doctrine. That's the tradition we come out of. And the question on my heart this morning is, are we a dangerous faith today? Are we collectively a dangerous faith today? Dangerous in the sense of knowing the core of our faith and living those core values in such a way that we question and challenge and assumption the assumptions and beliefs of our time. Are we still a dangerous faith today? I will tell you, when I began my ministry here in 2009 with all of you, in the fall of 2009, I was struck by the faith statements of our coming-of-age class, our ninth graders who shared their statements of belief with us in this special service we do every year. Probably many of you have been there. What I noticed five years ago was that these ninth graders, in their statements of faith, were naming everything they didn't believe in. It wasn't uncommon to hear a faith statement like this. I don't believe in heaven or hell. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in sin. I don't believe in prayer. I don't believe in miracles. We we'll go on and on. I don't believe. I don't believe. And I found myself as I was listening saying, okay, okay, we're a big tent faith. There's room for that. Of course there's room for that. But I found myself leaning in and hoping and moving forward in my pew, like "When, when when will you tell me what you do believe in? When will you tell me what you love, what is worthy of your loyalty? When will you tell me what you most trust in life? When will you tell me what the heart of your faith is? But that rarely happens. Defining yourself by what you're not is an empty faith. And it was clear to me in those moments five years ago that this was not a dangerous faith or an attractive faith necessarily or a faith that would even retain people. And let me be really clear. I don't blame our youth one bit for what they were saying. Not at all. You have to understand that in the 80s and the 90s and the aughts, there was a movement within Unitarian Universalism to let go of religious language. And as a result, many of us began to define ourselves by what we weren't. We knew we weren't that. We knew we weren't that. We knew we weren't that. The Reverend Bill Sinkford said it best about this letting go, this jettisoning jettisoning of religious language. He said, We Unitarian Universalists have thrown out so much traditional religious language that a lot of us have lost the vocabulary we may need to express our faith. I don't blame our youth for their statements of belief. They were simply picking up the threads that were in our religious culture. But embers of a dangerous faith were still alive here. Embers were still glowing. It's hard to kill a dangerous faith. And over the years I've been here, thanks to Reverend Ruth McKenzie and Lauren Wyeth and our coming-of-age mentors, our youth and us have deepened our understanding of the core, the heart of our faith. And the ninth-grade statements of belief have changed. If you've heard them the last couple of years, you know they are powerful and dynamic and affirmative. Youth now say things like this, I believe that love is what saves me, saves us. They'll say things like heaven and hell are states of mind and conditions here on earth and our work as religious people is to create a little bit more heaven if we can on earth. I hear you saying things like, I believe in something larger than myself. I don't know if it's God or creation or the cosmos, but I'm a part of something bigger than just myself. I hear things like, I believe that the human family and creation is deeply interconnected and interrelated, and that racism and all the other ways we divide the human family, that is an affront to the underlying unity of creation. My point is this, a dangerous faith knows where it stands. A dangerous faith has a center, and it has room for many voices and beliefs around it. We don't have to think alike to love alike, but we have to know where we stand. An empty or hollow faith defines itself by what it isn't. And without a religious center, It is easy, friends. I know this, you know this. It is easy to let our own self move into the center. To let the ego and the needs of the ego become that which we worship. We can make an idol of the self. A few years ago, I read... Rick Warren's book, The Purpose-Driven Life. I'm sure most of you have heard of that, right? It sold like a bajillion, jillion copies. I mean like 50 million copies or something. So he was obviously speaking something to a bunch of people. I don't agree with him theologically, but Rick Warren... Uh, said something that spoke to some people. He's the lead pastor of the Saddleback Church in California. It's a mega church, like 25,000 members. And theologically, Rick Warren and I are on very different ends of the, of the spectrum. But there was something about the opening line of that book that grabbed me when I cracked it open. I mean, I like to see what other pastors are reading and writing about church life, so if there's pieces we can use in our life, I can do that. So I opened the book up, and the open, opening line in this book, first sentence, first chapter, it's not about you (laughs) right it's not about you it's not about you or what you want it's not about your dreams and happiness alone as Rick Warren says contrary to what many popular books and movies and self-help books and seminars will tell you you won't discover your life's meaning by only looking within yourself You must discover your larger purpose. And this is Rick Warren's language. You must discover your larger purpose, which is God's purpose. That's his claim. Putting aside Rick Warren's theology for a minute, which includes the claim that the Bible was written without error. I don't agree with Rick Warren on that point. I think it was written by human beings, and there's all kinds of mistakes in the Bible. I was struck by the opening line of his book. It's not about you. Because if you imagine a circle, and I'm in the center of the circle, Justin, and many of us are in the center of the circle, right? That line, it's not about you, de-centers us. It took me out of the center of the circle. It allowed for there to be room for something else, something bigger, something more worthy of my loyalty than just my own needs and ego in the center of the circle. It de-centered me. And reading that, it reminded me that when we lose our religious vocabulary or when we become unclear about what the center of our faith is, then we become the center. And it does become all about us, what we want, what we need, what we feel would be good for us or our particular wants that day. And friends, the danger there is that's exactly what our culture wants us to do that's what the consumer culture, this culture that says it's not enough for you, it's not enough for those needs you have, that is the culture that puts us in the center, that is the culture that is destroying and desecrating our planet. So that passage, it's not about you, pulls me out of the center, and it reminded me, when I read that, it reminded me of this experience, this is one of the experiences that shaped me as a minister. When I used to serve at all souls unitarian church in tulsa oklahoma this is where bishop carlton pearson preaches regularly some of you were here two weeks ago when you heard him here when i was there every sunday in the worship service one of the worship leaders would say these lines it was a part of the liturgy every single sunday they would say this is indeed a day which god has made let us then rejoice in it and be glad And let us give thanks for our many blessings. Let us give thanks for the capacity to see, feel, hear, and understand. Let us especially give thanks for the ties of love which bind us together, giving dignity, meaning, worth, and joy to all of our days. We would say that every single Sunday. Some of you may recognize that as a riff on the 118th Psalm. I loved it, but I was uncomfortable with it. And I remember saying to the worship team early on in my time there, we were sat down, we were doing some worship planning, and I said, I don't know if I like this, saying that. What do we mean when we say this is indeed a day which God has made? I'm not even sure I believe that. And the senior minister, who's was a good friend of mine, a good friend now and then, he said to me, he was sat down, he said, that's okay. But here's why we say that, Justin. Here's why we say that every single Sunday, because you, Justin, did not make the day. <laughs> and, and he meant me and every other person in that congregation, right? You didn't make the day. You didn't, I didn't make the day. I didn't create the earth or the heavens or the oceans or the mountains or the creatures around us, he said in this conversation. He was very pastoral in this conversation. He said to me, you didn't create the air we breathe or the thunderclouds that bring rain. You didn't even create yourself. You didn't have anything at all to do with the miracle of your existence. So we say every Sunday, this is indeed a day which God has made to remind ourselves it's not about us. We didn't make the day. It is a gift that we had nothing to do with. And our response, he said, our response should be gratitude and an unstoppable desire to give back. That has stuck with me. I didn't make the day. You didn't make the day. It's not about me. It's not about you or us. And it never has been. It's about waking up to the miracle of being and responding to that miracle with the deepest love possible. And a dangerous faith is a faith that helps us live into the right questions, questions like, what is life asking of me? Where is love calling me next? What is love asking that I do next in my life? A colleague of mine articulates the core tenets that drive those kinds of questions, the core tenets of our dangerous faith. He articulates them this way. The first is this, that whatever else God may or may not be, God is love, and if we don't believe in God, we can put that aside and still believe in the power of love. We can believe that love is bigger than us and holds us. We can have an all-embracing love at the center of our lives. That's the first tenet. The second is that no one person or tradition holds all of the truth. Each of us and every tradition has a piece of the truth. Third, all people, all people are somehow sacred. Whether we call that inner divinity or simply human dignity, inner divinity or simply human dignity, excuse me, We say that all people are somehow sacred, black lives matter, native lives matter, immigrant lives matter, all lives matter. And then fourth, we all share a common destiny. This is radical when you let this one in, all of these, we all share a common destiny, we're all on the same spaceship planet Earth. It's a theological claim. We are in this, fundamentally in this together. There's not some people that are going to be saved or have it better. Like what happens to us and the planet happens to us and the planet. We all share a common destiny. Those four tenets, if we embrace them, are the heart of this dangerous faith. God is love. We each hold a piece of the truth. I was going to have a little puzzle piece up here as a visual. Like We each have a piece of the truth in this like bajillion-sized piece puzzle. We each have a piece of the truth. Everyone is sacred. We're in this together. And I will tell you, in the past few years, I've heard our ninth graders in their faith statements in unique and beautiful ways begin to offer their take on those tenets, truly living those tenets, letting them shine and burn brightly through us in public, with our families, with strangers, with friends, with colleagues. That is a dangerous faith. And as your senior minister, I want to do everything we can possibly do in our power to remove barriers that prevent us from being the most dangerous faith that we can be. So friends, there is one big barrier in the way we've identified this year, and it is our religious education fees. We've had a task force working this past year exploring the dynamics around charging fees for religious education. This fee was in place before I started my ministry here. It's been in place for some time, and it covers a fraction of the costs in our religious education program. It covers some curriculum and snacks and materials. It brings in about $40,000 a year. What this task force has learned is that even though we offer scholarships to families who can't pay these fees, religious education fees turn some families away from our program. We've also learned how uncomfortable it is to say to families who are visiting, families who are drawn to this faith, to say to them, you'll need to pay a fee for uh, the program if you want to have your kids in the program. And many have paid that fee, but we know for some of you it's left a sour taste in your mouth the task force noted and hear this church the task force noted that we don't charge adults all right a separate fee for the hymnals and the candles and the music and everything that goes into making sunday morning worship happen we don't charge a sunday morning worship fee if we started charging a sunday morning worship fee i imagine i would preach to a bunch of empty pews every single sunday Instead, we ask everyone to make the most generous gift they can make to support Sunday morning worship and all of the ministry we do here. What's true is that religious education, the forming and the shaping of our children and youth, it is one of the core ministries that we do here. And this working group was clear, and I agree with them, it is morally and spiritually untenable to continue to charge religious education fees. Many faith communities long to have families with children coming to their church. They would kill to have families coming to their church. And it is crazy for us to do anything that would turn those families away. That is a barrier, a barrier that prevents us from being the most vibrant and dangerous faith we can be. And I suspect some of you may be wondering this morning, well, will this bring in too many people? will I still have my spot for my kids in religious education? And it's true, this may change everything. There may be a bunch of other families that come into this program, and this is where the church asks us to live as though it isn't all about us. It's about living in deep alignment with our values. And frankly, I would rather have overcrowding problems than charge people for religious education. So next year, we will not charge a single penny for our basic religious education programming at church. This means, thank you. What this means, what this means is that we need to make up that $40,000 deficit that we generated from religious education fees every year. And the simple math of this is, is if every couple or person who makes a pledge made a financial that was increased by $100 or $150 or $200, we would more than make up that difference and RE fees would be eliminated in a heartbeat. We're doing this. We're aligning our values and our actions because the task of faith formation for our children belongs to all of us. This is what a dangerous faith looks like. We align our values with our actions. We speak about what we believe in and love in and long for. And your financial pledge supports this dangerous faith and helps us eliminate those fees. Your financial pledge helps us open up space for this Families Moving Forward program so folks experiencing homelessness have a place to be with their families for a week. Your financial pledge helps us continue and deepen the racial justice journey we're on as we look at race and racism and whiteness through the lens of our faith. Your pledge helps make this a dangerous faith a faith bound up in love, grounded in those basic tenets. God is love. Each human life is sacred. Each of us has a piece of, tr- of the truth, and we're in this together. So this flame, prior to this Sunday, this flame that we had been lighting every Sunday, it was the wrong flame. These past years, the flame in our chalice has been the wrong flame. It has been too small, too timid, too weak, too puny. (laughs) Not nearly big enough and bold enough and bright enough to represent the dangerous faith that we are called to be, that we are a part of. And so may this flame, as it flickers and leaps and dances, may this flame speak to the spark in you so that you may shine brightly, that you may know your faith and live it deeply. May this dancing flame speak to the flame in your heart and together may we live this dangerous faith. Amen. Amen. And blessed be.